Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopists, I meet with Gail McConnell, Professor of Physics and Director of the Centre of Biophotonics at the University of Strathclyde. And not only do we talk about her groundbreaking work developing new imaging instruments and techniques, but we also discuss her career highlights. You know, getting the first measles lens up and running, seeing the first results there, the first sort of continuum results, but to see that this is actually going to work. How she once ruffled feathers at an international conference. You're not happy, you, you've scooped us. We were working on that for three years. Despite becoming the first female physics professor at Strathclyde at just 34, Gail still had doubts early in her career. I think it was also um, to use some new new language, uh, imposter syndrome. Um, but I was convinced that absolutely everybody surrounding me really knew what you know they had it together. And Gail still being able to maintain a healthy work-life balance. Professionally, yeah, I can totally see the point in that. Personally, it doesn't really fit with my plans, so it's a bit of a tough one. All in this episode of the Microscopists. Hello, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York and today on the Microscopist I'm joined by Gail McConnell from the University of Strathclyde. Hello Gail. Hello Peter, how are you? I'm good thank you. We've Actually I've I working this out how long we've known each other and I think it's 19 years? Uh, your calculation matches mine. Uh, I would say uh, almost 19 years, April uh, 2003. At Go on, where was it then? Uh, Genoa. It what? what uh, I don't, which one? I don't know if I know her or not. Uh, focus on microscopy. How uh, would the astro be in a superior host as ever? Yes. No, yeah, it was FOM in Genoa. But can you ever say Genoa and go, I, well, I don't know. Who? I don't know if I know her or not, if you know her. <laughs> Have I got an of this? <laughs> <laughs> you should have known they were coming. <laughs> oh dear, I can blame my terrible Wi-Fi connection, but yeah, it's not going to happen. So yes, FOM Genoa, uh, which was uh, which my big first international conference. It was not mine, but it was my first European international conference, strangely. As a PhD student, I'd gone to meetings in San Francisco and in Baltimore. Um, I'm not going to say it too loudly, so I'll kind of sort of watch you whisper it, but they were not as good as bomb. Um, they were too big. And as a PhD student, you don't know anybody, so you can't meet everybody and have a chat. Form is, you know, it's a few hundred folk. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of blown away by, you know, apart from else, I mean, generally it's a lovely city. Yeah, it was, it was just great to actually meet and talk to people. Um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that great meeting. Um, but Albert knows how it's a party, so, you know, it's, it's worth going for that one. It was, uh, oh, actually, I, I just thought you sent me some pictures, didn't you? I'm not very organised at all today. Yeah, I start the show on. And actually, it's probably... I, yeah, that, that's, that's not form. No, uh, no, no. That's no, another Albie. Albie shebang. I, it was Albie's gig, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, it, Genoa. I, I think this was about 2018-ish. Um, I mean, it, it seems a wee bit kind of any excuse to get some friends together, but you know, there's good scientific merit in all of this. Uh, it's not all uh, fancy dinners and drinking. <laughs> but obviously, it's not just Albie that's on that picture. Do you want to talk us through who else is on there? Oh, if I can remember, so we've got Martin Lohine, uh, some a date in a pink jumper, Albie Diaspro, we've got Sarah Abrahamson, um, Colin Shepherd, and Ksenia, who I believe is now, she was at Herrick Watt the last time, I think I, I heard. So, yeah, I'm guessing she's still there. <clears throat> That's a pretty powerful set of microscopists. Yeah, take me out the picture. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, if you look at their impacts on the field, uh, it is pretty, pretty big. So no, it was FOM, and I remember, I think just two of us went for dinner, because I knew no one. I, I think Stefan Turing uh, and uh, Timo Zimmerman, I knew those two, and then you, you kind of know some of the companies that are there, but that was about it. So, my, my recollection of this is slightly different, uh, and it's when I appeared at the registration desk. I was slightly nervous, you know, I'm kind of early career postdoc at this point. 
um, and you appeared behind me and just started talking at me as if you knew me. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? I'm normally pretty good at remembering the folk. And you just, oh yeah, you're from the UK, what is it you do? Blah, 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 blah. And at that point, I thought, right, okay, this is going to be fine. Um, but the only other memory I have of that meeting, apart from the wine waiters, you know, kind of making, making a bit of a fuss, which was all lovely, um, was one evening you and I went for a beer somewhere, and it was, it, we'll, we'll call it a very uh, character filled uh, place. We were sitting outside, it was, it was like sitting next to the bins, you know, having a beer, a uh, lovely evening. And you were just berating me because you were like, why didn't you go and see the Flynn woman? The Flynn woman was amazing. She had a fringe. This stuff was terrific. You should have seen this. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I think it was in the, you know, the multi-photon session. I thought, you missed it, Gail. You don't know what you're missing. You, you should have seen it. I wish you could have been there. And this went on for a good hour and a half. So, you know, I still don't know who the Flynn woman is. This could have changed my entire career. <laughs> that was a lifetime ago. No, 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 it's, it's still fresh in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm a lot quieter now. Has <laughs> age mellowed you? Is that what you're trying to tell me? It's not happening. I don't believe you. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd probably had coffee or something. I wasn't used to having caffeine. I think genuinely you were just excited about the flim. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good conference. And the parallel sessions, it was, it was one of those few times where actually it was very hard to know which parallel to go to. Yeah, yeah, and, and there was not 10 parallel sessions, it was kind of two or three. That's nice. It means you don't miss too much, except the plumbing. So what was your main go-to conference now then? I really should have one. I find increasingly that, especially because of the Maze Lines project, we're not quite microscopy any longer. It's imaging, it's optical, you know, there's yeah. kind of appropriate phrases there. But the Mesa scales thing, I don't know. I'm not really sure we fit anywhere any longer, so we tend to go to just, you know, whatever we think will be useful and interesting. Lately, increasingly though, I guess because of the biological applications that we're doing now, I'm sending students and postdocs to meetings that I, I don't know anything about, you know? So we're writing abstracts now, for, for example, for neurobiofilms. I, I know next to nothing about this new thing, but you know, the, the, the lineup looks tremendous. You know, students are desperate to go, great, you know. So I'm not sure we have any go-to meetings. The one or two, I guess, is that I would probably routinely turn up to are Frontiers in Bioimaging and MMC in the UK. Um, and it's not just because they're down the road. Uh, I quite like the kind of size of these meetings. I find that when you go to the, the kind of larger international conferences, as I said previously, you, you kind of meet about... 2% of the people that are there. I, I don't really enjoy that. I like the kind of more intimate meetings where you actually talk to the people that are there. It, it's interesting that you're sending your PhDs or postdocs to meetings that are slightly outside, outside the optics field. Yeah, you outside the optics field. <laughs> That's interesting. If you think about it, if you read grant proposals, I'm going to say, how are you going to disseminate what your science is? And you hear it's the same meetings that they're going to disseminate it to. But they're talking to like-minded people who aren't the end users yeah. of it necessarily. So you're now sending to the bio meetings, the more application orientated, which is where you are a bit of fish out of water because you're more niche, but you're providing a solution. So I presume this is a way of actually taking your developments to the field that are going to need it. Rather than just talking to microscopies, you're talking to the end users. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is one of the... One of the very many problems with grant applications is that they often hide more than they reveal. And the structure and format of grant applications doesn't really allow you to think about, you know, what happens beyond, for example, the scope of the grant. And I realise there's follow-on funding and all these types of things, but I guess primarily in my group, we develop methods and instruments. And if those are unsuccessful, we don't go to meetings like neurobiofilms or, you know, the kind of applications based. We need to have done that work first before we get to the applications um, and often what we find is when we develop some new technology or other yeah. we think it's going to be really successful in one application area and actually it turns out that the applications are somewhere completely different and it's difficult to predict. <clears throat> so, so let's just go back in time so you're, you're now a professor of physics director of the bio, biophotonics 
Nice. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, interesting. Bio, what is biophotonics? Is, is, is there a verb in that sentence I'm going to have the show? <laughs> why is biophotonics? <laughs> why is Peter? Why do you? Um, why, why is biophotonics? But, um, certainly in my case, uh, biophotonics is because it was a term that I that existed before I appeared. <laughs> so I, I was a PhD student in the physics department and I had a job lined up in industry. This was kind of summer 2001. I had no plans to remain in academia whatsoever. I actively did not want to stay in academia. And uh, then in September 2001, international events with World Trade Center and so on, meant that a lot of graduate recruiters panicked and withdrew their job offers, and I was one of the, the folk that were affected. So um, obviously very minor in the grand scheme of you know the, the political situation at the time, but it meant that, you know, thinking about how to pay my rent. So my PhD advisor at the time, Alison Ferguson, had said, oh, we've got this three-month postdoc uh, in this new centre for biophotonics that we're setting up. Would you be interested in that? Yes. So I appear there. And yeah, that, that's why biophotonics, because the centre for biophotonics had just opened a few months previous to this. There was a wee bit of postdoc cash. I turn up. Biophotonics is, is, is what they are doing. And so that's therefore what I am doing and what I'm kind of still doing, I guess. <clears throat> So when you were 10 years old, to take you way back, that sounds really insulting. Sorry, to take you back to when you were 10, not way back. I'm not saying you really... <laughs> it's way back, it's fine. <laughs> All measurements are relative, yeah. <laughs> so when you were a young girl, what was your aspiration? What did you, what did you want to be, be? Where did you see your future at that age? Any aspirations? I mean, that, that makes it sound as if I was thinking about what was going to happen when I was like this age. I absolutely was not. Um, I did not really have any kind of aspirations, motivator, drivers. I mean, I, I probably have family around me that would kind of suggest things. Um, what I did know, by the time I was 10, uh, I had my first uh, home computer, and that was a ZX Spectrum Plus. And you know, the first thing you do is you load in a game and you have a wee play and that's all very nice. And then I realised that there was a wee bit more to it than this and that if I typed certain words in, other things could happen, like you could turn the screen blue. And I realised that, you know, as a nine or ten-year-old, being able to turn the screen blue and have control over this, I found it quite powerful. So then I started teaching myself some basic programming and, you know, I realised, you know, my mum's coming up to my bedroom where I'm sitting, it's the middle of summer, go outside and play, but I'm interested in, you know, kind of effectively eight bit uh, computing at this point. So, yeah, but I still went out and played because I like being outdoors, so, yeah. <clears throat> what was your favourite computer game? Oh, right, okay, there's so many. Do you mean then or now? Now, go to ZX Spectrum first, and then we'll go to that. ZX Spectrum. Uh, right, well, so the first game I played would have been Horoscope Skiing. Oh, um, I forgot all about that. Yeah, and I mean, just it's a kind of Frogger style. Um, you have to navigate a little spider called Horace across a busy road to start with. And then there's some complete discontinuity. Somebody had clearly been taking the good drugs at this point, because once you get Horace to the bottom of this slalom, uh, it cuts screen. Uh, no, sorry, you, you get him across the road. And then you have to make him go skiing down a slalom. And then you go back and the traffic gets a bit busier. So then you have to get him across the screen from top to bottom, frogger style. Then you take him down the slalom again, but there's more little goals. I mean, what made somebody think that what we really need is a, a traffic-based scenario <laughs> coupled with skiing? What's <laughs> happening? I have no idea. But probably the games enjoyed more were a bit later when they were kind of platform-based, Jet Set, Willie, Manic Miner. Um, Roller coaster, that type of thing, where you had control over a single person, graphics improved and so on. So, yeah, that. Now it's totally different. You still have control over a person, but I like, you know, open world strategies still. Are you still a gamer then? Yes. So, in fact, I was doing a practice fiver with one of my students last night, who's also a gamer. So, after the practice fiver, we spent, you know, a good half hour chatting about what games we're playing and so on. And I told him that I'm currently playing Fallout 76. And he berated me for this. He went through me. He said, why are you playing this? It's terrible. And I had to explain to him that it's now on something like season seven. It's been through iterations. It's much better. It's a bit more like Fallout 4. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm still working my way through Fallout 76. And I, I, I've done the main parts of the game and I just cannot let it go. I, I, I'm going to have to move on because, yeah, I, I found myself thinking at midnight last night I could just go back in. I thought, no, I, I really need to go up early tomorrow. <laughs> this is not happening. 
And what's your console? Oh, right. So uh, we, we've got a Switch, PS4 and PS5. And uh, my partner is now also playing Fallout 76. So he's using the PS4. I'm using the PS5. He's sitting with an iPad. I'm sitting with the TV. Yeah, it's ridiculous. You know, the, the conversation is mainly Fallout-based at the moment. <laughs> I, 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 yes. So moving on. So what got you into physics? Oh, uh, good question. Uh, a person rather than a set of circumstances, I think. Uh, when I went to secondary school, I had a very good physics teacher, um, a guy called Jim Tinney. And Jim, I guess, would be described as a, a kind of typical geek, nerd, etc., I quite like the sense of humour. I like the fact that it was logical, it was kind of analytical, that if you repeat measurements, you know, you build up a kind of statistical set. It, yeah, I just started to kind of get to grips with the fact that this is, this is quite interesting and elegant, and I like the rules that surrounded it. Um, and yeah, and then I kind of fell away from science for a bit. Um, I had never intended to study physics at university. I'd applied to study modern languages and I'd accepted a place. And then at the 11th hour, I changed my mind, <laughs> decided it wasn't vocational enough. I entered physics through clearing because I didn't have the appropriate qualifications. Um, struggled for about the first year, then started to really enjoy it. <clears throat> so you say you didn't have the, the best qualifications at A-level? Uh, to go into university and that first year was, I guess, catch-up time? A bit of that, but I think it was also um, to use some new, new language, uh, imposter syndrome. Um, but I was convinced that absolutely everybody surrounding me really knew, what, you know, they had it together, they knew what they were doing. And then kind of towards the end of the first year, I noticed that a lot of these people were dropping out, <laughs> but I'm still in the room. Um, and I'm not maybe doing as badly as I thought. Yeah, I'm still there. And then I realised that maybe if I put in a wee bit more work, <laughs> I could actually be quite good at this. And I'm not saying I was good, but I, I certainly, uh, there was an improvement, a considerable improvement. Was that, was that at Strathclyde as well? Yeah. So, so I, I've gone from school to Strathclyde and I'm still at Strathclyde effectively. Wow, that's pretty rare. Very unusual. Uh, yeah, I, I, I remember when I was doing a PhD. Well, actually, I did, I, I did my undergraduate PhD and my first postdocs at the same place. Even that's and, yeah, which was unusual, and still have a career, even more unusual. Uh, just very lucky, I think. Uh, well, luck has so much to do with it. It does. It, you always recommend it. You must have been told if you're going to succeed, you have to move. And that's what I was always told. You know, you shouldn't really do the PhD in the same place, but the lab was great. Why am I going to leave one of the best labs? And then you do your PhD, then the postdoc goes, well, I can carry on working in one of the best labs and carry on doing what I'm good at. And, you know, I, in the end, I got itchy. I, I needed a move to, to freshen up. But you must have had the same advice. And I'm still receiving the same advice, even now. Um, it's, you know, you should think about, you know, having some time overseas and so on. But, I mean, professionally, yeah, I can totally see the point in that. Personally, doesn't really fit with my plans so it's a bit of a tough one I guess I was also lucky in as much as that I had a couple of fellowships that meant that for the best part of about seven years because these fellowships run kind of with a bit of overlap between them um although I was nominally employed to work at Strathclyde I didn't spend a lot of time there you know I just visited labs worldwide and you know get a sense of how to work differently from what I had either experienced previously or what I saw around me. Um, and that, that I think was quite useful. Uh, we, so, so obviously it's had no negative effect on your career. Uh, we don't know that. <laughs> Maybe it has. Well, you hit professorship <laughs> at a fairly young age. I, 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 I'm trying to work it out now, but yeah, I think it was about 34, 35. Yeah, Which is, uh, yeah I, mean, I, I realised, yeah. Which is which is very young to get a professorship. And in the world of physics as well, it is, again, we, you must be one of the first professors in physics at Strathclyde. Professors in physics? Female, no. female. Female. Yes. Uh, I am the first, yeah. 
I mean, there's other female professors around, just not in the physical department. Uh, when we now have a second one, which I'm absolutely delighted about. It's a strange. It, it's, so from, from coming from the bio side, where actually, it's certainly at York, gender equality is pretty good. And it's not something you, know, you don't have to think about much. It's just kind of invasive. Isn't it? There's as many high impacting. In fact, I've got to say, at the department, my go-tos have been the likes of Ottilie and Liza, Debbie Smith. You know, they, they have been my rocks uh, yeah. in many aspects when it comes to grant writing, supporting and research in academia. Uh, but it's amazing that in the world of physics, it's, it's behind still, and I think it's still behind. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the statistics, even the Institute of Physics are publishing, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. Just, well. it's, it's, I find it curious that you mentioned that these these female um, professors have been your rocks, and often we see that the, the kind of how how do I put this the kind of social or cultural load sometimes falls to women within departments. Or yeah, that's something that I, I see funders being increasingly aware of too. Yeah, as I say, rocks because they were. The most supportive people in my career, beyond my director is John Cromwell. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ottilie was very pushing my career, uh, and Debbie also was really keen to help me progress my career. And, and so they were inspirational in, in driving that forward. I don't know why, particularly them in the department. I, I guess Debbie, she was head of department and then pro vice chancellor for research. Uh, but Ottilene wasn't at the time. Uh, but yeah, they certainly helped, you know, told me I should be leading the grant applications. You know, so I was in an atypical position and to be leading grant applications wasn't the typical thing to be done. But they were like, no, 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 you lead it. You know, it makes sense for you to lead. And that was pretty rare at the time. It's good to see BBSRC is now really pushing that agenda or the sort of technician's commitment agenda uh, and the other supporting roles. But uh, York, York was there back then how daunting was it to be a professor at 34 you talked about imposter syndrome when you started your degree that's pretty... at that point it's just another thing you do you don't you don't think about it other people use the title and i guess the only other people that really use the title are students who are looking for an extension or uh yeah that's it that, that is exactly the only people use and I'm, I'm not really big in titles so I haven't really paid much attention to it, to be honest. So, so what, what's, what's on your credit card? I don't know. Um, I think it says doctor. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I've, I, I didn't bother changing anything. Why would I do that? Okay. <laughs> and, and what's your 12-digit uh, number? It's, uh, I, I think, <laughs> also my mother's maiden name. Is <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's just sad. I can actually, I actually know my 12-digit number. Isn't that? Yeah, I know my sixteen-digit numbers because if without those, forget yes, If it's a twelve-digit number, you're not going anywhere. Peter. <laughs> no, 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 I always have to check the plus four. Well, I don't want to be a liability. Come on. <laughs> so, work on the meso lens. That that isn't where you started. You didn't start. Like, very much. I knew you from your laser work. Uh, so, super continuum lasers, from my <laughs> recollection. I mean, I guess that, that was not where I started really. I mean, I, I started building, like, we'll say proper lasers, where you start with a pump diode and you collimate it into a normal dielectric crystal and you build a resonator around it and then you try and mode lock it or you do something to tailor the output and then build optical parametric oscillators because one can vert frequency. And that, that's kind of really where I started. And I then joined the Centre for Biophotonics, as I mentioned previously, in this three-month appointment. Uh, three months turned into three years, uh, three months into years. And about a year into that appointment, I was working with an electrophysiologist called Alison Burney, who's the University of Manchester. Um, not, so not really a microscopist by training, but she could see that I was quite happy, as well as running the kind of day-to-day -day, um, experiments within the Centre for Biophotonics Imaging Centre and facility to make sure that I never looked in a microscope until I was a postdoc. So this this for me was a bit of transform. Um did she see I was enjoying you know building lasers for microscopy and she said she should apply for a fellowship and I didn't know what a fellowship was. So 
she kind of talked me through the process a wee bit and I applied for a bunch and uh, get an interview to one and I somehow managed to convince the panel that I could do something potentially useful. That, that was nice. And then I realised that I was going to have to do things, but I didn't know how to do all of these things. How do you apply for grants? How do you get equipment? How, how do you, so you're meant to hire people? How does all this work? Um, now, this coincides roughly with the time that Alison um, left to go to work at the University of Manchester. So there's me and these microscopes <laughs> and not really much else. Um, so I, I then uh, returned at least spiritually to my home at the Department of Physics and started kind of getting a bit of guidance and support from those folks, also trying to expand my networks through groups like well, Microscopical Society, Institute of Physics and so on, so that I could meet other people that knew about this stuff more than I did, because my first applications are absolutely bombed because I didn't know what I was doing. And then you learn a bit about how to craft an application or write a paper and so on. And so the super continuum work, it was a curious one because I'd never planned to do that, but one of my collaborators had some of this platonic crystal fibre. And I said, can I use it? And he said, ah, sure, knock yourself out. So I did some experiments. They took me about a week. I wrote the paper and then I disappeared to go to one of these big international meetings in the US to present other work. And it was accepted and this was all good. And then I realised that ah, I think you've done something that's quite useful here. Because other people seem interested in it. And I was getting a lot of emails and, you know, come and speak to us at the university or whatever. But the thing that made me realise that actually was more than I had thought was I went to yet another, a different focus microscopy meeting and some academics which will remain nameless eh, appeared in front of me and said, you get McConnell. Yeah. Went there and, and disappeared and went to get other academics and brought them back. We're not happy with you. You know, and I'm, you know, kind of junior fellow holders at this point. We're not happy with you. You've scooped us. We were working on that for three years and I've done these experiments and like, you know, a week or two, written the paper, bashed it out. It's not a great paper, but it proved principle. It was enough kind of at the time and I guess biophotonics was certainly in its infancy there. You could get away with a lot more than you probably could now. Um, but I think there was also the kind of legal angle where, you know, there was a patent existing that like I held on the use of microstructured fibres for supercontinuum generation, and there was a bit of kind of protracted discussion with them. Uh, I, I'm still of the opinion that their patent doesn't necessarily hold. So these academics, were they genuinely cross? No, but I thought they were cross. <laughs> I thought they were cross. You've really annoyed us because you've done this work. But as it turned out, they were like, no, no, it's really good because it means we can now do something else yeah, yeah. based on this. We just repair your paper and move on. But, you know, the, the sweat was running out of me. <laughs> oh, my God, what did I do? I've really annoyed these people. These are big hitters. Oh, this, this is the end of me. But, no, it, it was all very cordial. That's it. But you didn't name them. You kept them. Of course. Why, Why would I name them? They're, they're nice people. They're good, they're good folk. They still work in the field. Yeah. It's nice. It's good. So you moved, actually, is this, I don't know how long this picture is. Oh, it's, it's at least a week. No, um, I would say that, that, I can tell based on the laser, so that's a Myra. That's a Myra that I believe we bought to build a CARS microscope, and that would be around 2009 or so. Um, in fact, I can tell by what I'm wearing. Yeah, that's by 2009. <laughs> You can tell from what, what the glasses are. I can also tell from, because who took the photographs, so there was one of PhD students um, of the time, Romelo Amor, who was a very keen photographer. So we've got like hundreds of photos from around that time, of social events and, you know, lunches out, and things in the lab. So, so, so this one's obviously seriously at work with a laser. Oh, Th This one looks like something out of Scooby-Doo. It's is not a Scooby-Doo. I'm an international woman of mystery, Peter. What I really like about this photo is you don't know it's me unless you know me. Because <laughs> it's really obviously me, if you know me, but if you don't, who is that? <laughs> but what you're looking at there is the glare from uh, a, a five-watt Verde in the wall behind me. <laughs> so, so you've got some great photos, and then obviously you started taking them yourself. Well, <laughs> so that, that, 
there was a purpose behind that one. Um, and it was to prove that, yes, I really was back in the building and this was after the lockdown. So we went in a complete shutdown, you know, March 2020. I managed to get back in at the end of um, June. And it really was to show people, we, we are now back. Like, this is okay, it's going to be fine. So that's why I'm in the lab wearing a, a solitaire buff um, with a measle lens behind me. Yeah. You know, that's a lot wider than I recall the early measle lenses. Uh, I mean, you say measle lenses in plural there as if there are like hundreds of them. Uh, I think there are four. Uh, so there's one, there's three Strathclyde and one in Plymouth. The, the prototype is a bit narrower. So, you know, that, that's it's a longer, thinner, it's yeah. about 90 centimetres long, I think. That one's kind of short and dumpy, basically. But yeah, uh, that has three correction colours, unlike the prototype, which only has two. <laughs> <laughs> it is very nice. I, I I actually like the face covering as well. Pretty cool. Right. Yes, you've had to take your own photos. So you've got now a lab. I don't know if this is. I just grab a photo. Is this your current team? No, that, oh, that's an old team, isn't that it? That's taken a long time ago. Hello, yeah, it is a long time. Um, so yeah, that was taken in October two thousand and eight. Uh, and the reason I know, in fact, it was November 2008, um, it was very early November. And the people that were looking at here around me are, are my research group of the time. Uh, so, Wei Zhang, Kyle Gardner, Kyle, uh, John Harris, uh, Eldrick Esposito, who was also my first PhD student, who was second from the right, and Greg Norris, who then did a PhD studentship with me and went on to do a postdoc. This is at the Nexus Young Life Scientist of the Year Award, which was a kind of Scottish competition. Um, and I've sort of worked at this in 2008. The reason that I remember that it was November is because I ended up on the cover of this Nexus magazine. And I'm wearing, I'm wearing this photo here, and my PhD advisor came up to me and he said, I didn't know you at first. Was it Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, and uh, you can see he was not pleased with whatever it was that I'd done or was wearing or something. So that was that. <laughs> it's noticeable that everyone is quite conservatively dressed and so this is possibly your latest lab photo which is far more colourful yeah I mean th that's what we normally wear day to day <laughs> this is Rogue Paul's drag race or, or, or yeah, Rue, I think it's Rue Gale's drag race yeah um so I, I am Rue Paul just above the, the in, in the pink dress in the centre uh but yeah uh, there's some crackers there yeah that one I and obviously Oh, over there is Brad. Yes. I mean, it looks as if he's making a speedy getaway from this, as if I'm having nothing to do with it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it makes a change from his spangly purple jumpsuit that he wears to Plymouth. So, you know, day wear, evening wear. <laughs> also different to the skits that he does down at uh, MRC as well. Absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'll have seen the, the photos in his own podcast previously of. Uh, his uh, fancy dress for those. Uh, you know, I, I think for Secret Santa, someone's got to buy him an Ali G outfit. Don't, because it will encourage the accents. <laughs> we have an ongoing discussion about what accents are allowed. Um, in the confines of my office, you can use whatever accent you like, and that's fine. But, you know, affecting the Japanese accent in the Japanese restaurant quite loudly, maybe isn't the best idea. But for him, it's just entirely about entertainment, and I, I have to uh, understand and support that. So I asked you what you wanted to be uh, when you were 10. Uh, you obviously then wanted to be a, a, a scientist. And- I didn't know what a scientist was when I was 10. No, no, I'm just, I've never chosen to be a scientist. Good greatest football in the world. Uh, or baking, just to like bread. But- Why bake when you can go to a shop and buy a cake that somebody else has already made? Your life's too short for that. Because shops used to close and weren't open on Sundays. Why would you want to No, not having that. <laughs> You're now, I, I, won't, I won't quote your age, but what would you be if you could be anything today? Worldwide. Uh, what, 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 what job would you do? What would be your dream? Anything job? else. I don't know. See, I, I love being outdoors. Um, but the big problem with being outdoors in Scotland is that about 60% of the year it's absolutely freezing and I don't do well in the cold. Um, so I quite fancy 
some living somewhere with a better climate than Scotland, where you can be outdoors year round. Um, I guess if, if I try and kind of combine interests I mean, and some of the things I've learned since I was 10 or so, and I enjoy the kind of marine biology and so on. So maybe somewhere a bit slightly tropical, but a marine biology, I could answer that. So look out Hawaii. Yeah, I've not been to Hawaii, but that would be it. No, no, me. I hear good things. So. Yeah, why, why have we got a big conference in Hawaii? So there's a giant, well, giant, well-known uh, non-linear optics conference that certainly used to take place in Hawaii, and I, I never made it to it, but, yeah, career fail on my part. That needs, needs to make a comeback. <laughs> okay, so let, let's fast forward another... 20, 30, 40 years, I'm not guessing your age, uh, to when you retire? Oh no, I mean, I'm going to retire far sooner than that, come on. <laughs> I might not have a pension by the time I get there, but plenty to do it. <laughs> so are you going to cling on or are you going to, cheers, now I'm going to do oh, something. Right, okay. Right, okay, so if I think about it seriously, if, if the grant money's there and we're able to keep going, I'll keep going. Um, Realistically, I think, without being too negative, the funding situation is dire uh, and it's so challenging that I can see it get, gets to the point where it's no, it's no longer enjoyable, it's no longer tenable. And so I think it would be that that would push me out. But yeah, I, I'm, I, I, can, I think if I did it young enough that I could go and enjoy my retirement, then I, I would be okay with that. What would you do? I guess, well, I'll, I'll quote what one of my students said recently when I, when I spoke to them and I said, ah, I'm just retired, you know, don't get the money in and so on. And he said, Gail, if you're retired, they said your thighs would be like that within about a year. And I said, oh, well, what, what do you mean? He said, because you'd be out on your bike all day. He said, you'd be up and down the mountains, you'd be up and down the roads. He said, you, you just never stop moving. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. So, yeah. <clears throat> Cycling a lot. So you wouldn't just finish fortnight? Oh, no, Fortnite. More interesting in Fortnite. Fallout. Fallout, yes. Fallout, oh, Fallout. Fallout, yes. Fallout, 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 Fallout, yes. Telling what your grant proposed, Lisa, you don't get scooped. What do you see in the field as the next big challenge? Right, okay, so I guess as far as the measles, which is one of the main projects concerned, there, I think we're just starting to scratch the surface about how we can study more of the fixed or the living animal. Um, I see an explosion of techniques at the kind of measles scale, macro scale, um, eminent. Probably in the next kind of 10, 20 years. None of these developments are going to happen quickly, but I think that they will be important. Hmm. And <clears throat> moving through now, so challenging, sort of next big challenge, but think about challenging times. What's been the most difficult time in your career? Uh, I think I've spoken about it previously, and it was at the point where I made the step from being a postdoc to being an independent researcher because I hadn't a clue what I was doing. I'm not saying I know what I'm doing now, but I know a bit more about what I'm doing now. Uh, this was just a baptism of fire. Um, I look at early career researchers now, I don't envy them. I think it's a lot more difficult to come through the system, you know, the, the 20 years later uh, than, than I did. It's a lot more competitive. I, I would not be competitive at the moment um, with papers that if equivalent I had at the time. Um, I think that a lot of the kind of fellowship schemes do a better job now. And that's not a disparage the fellowship that I had. I think they just do a better job now. And institutions generally have a better awareness that early career researchers do need support. Um, otherwise they won't succeed. And it's in everybody's interest for them to succeed, including the individual. So. And what about the most fun time in your career? What's been one of the, if you if you were to go back and relive a year, what would be the most fun period? Oh, there's, there's so many. 
I mean, it's impossible. It's like choose your your favourite child or your favourite pet or whatever. I mean, no, it's, that's that's impossible because first there's stuff that you know you complain about, like you know the, the fact that it was kind of difficult to get funding or didn't know what it was doing. There was still lots of fun stuff like. <laughs> the simplicity of buying your first optical table and realising that if you run your hand along it a certain way, it makes a fun noise. And so, I, you know, I have a video clip somewhere of some of my early PhD students basically drumming bass in it with this new optical table that has nothing on it. Yeah, there's nothing on it for a reason. I don't know how to purchase anything else, but the, there's, there's the kind of offset of the, this is fun stuff. So, yeah, no, there, there's a lot, a lot of really good stuff. I mean, some standout kind of points are, you know, getting the first music lens up and running, seeing the first results there, the first super continuum results, when you see that this is actually going to work. Um, seeing these intracolony channels and biofilms for the first time, we've never seen them before, we didn't know they existed, wow, what's that? Right, we need to know more about this. And then it kind of seeds, you know, lots of other uh, activities. So, yeah, difficult to choose just one. So, going back to the Mesa lens again then, Obviously, you've got a very close relationship, working relationship with Brad. How did that even start? There you are on a super continuum laser side, type side. There you've got Brad, who's this god of microscopy. You know, you've got two worlds that have come together. How did that initiate? I have no idea. It initiated um, thanks to the what then, what at that point was the Plymouth Optical Microscopy course. And I, it's a slightly strange one, I went to the course in 2004, which was the second time that the course had run. And the person I mentioned previously, Alison Gurney, who was my line manager, had been in contact with uh, David Ogden, who she'd worked with previously, um, to say, oh, I see that you've run this course, can I send a couple of people on it? And he said, yeah, uh, uh, okay, we'll see what we can do. So apparently we turned up. Uh, me and this colleague of mine, uh, but the people in Plymouth had absolutely no expectation that we were going to be there, so they had to find somewhere for us to stay and all the other things that you don't want to have when you're organising meeting. But anyway, so I went to this month's course, absolutely loved it, had a great time, learned about all these microscopy things. Cells, right, okay, tell me, I mean, Roger Chen, I think, was speaking that year about folk proteins. It's like, come on, you know, th th this, this was just an eye-opener for me. It was so immersive, 10 days, non-stop microscopy, effectively. And one of the speakers there was, and I, 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 sadly, I forget the guy's name, but he gave a, a seminar about laser. So I thought, I don't know about this, so, you know, I, I'm looking forward to it, because it's always nice to hear about things you already know. So the guy presented, and, you know, he spoke about lasers, how you can work with them, what they can do, and it was, it was quite a flashy talk. You know, I remember he was wearing a waistcoat with some lighting in the back, you know, it was quite nice, you know, quite like that. Nice touch. Always in terms of the, for the showman, you know. And uh, at the end of the, the talk, uh, thank you very much, uh, any questions? And Brad put his hand up and said, I've recently heard about these white lasers. Do you, do you know anything about these? And the speaker said, I'm afraid I don't. So I said, well, I know about these because that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm building them. So after the talk, Brad and I kind of, like a, we have a wee chat about why like yeah, how do you build can, can you can you bring one to Cambridge? And I said, well, I can bring one. I said, but I can bring the bits to build once we planned it. And a couple of months later, I went to visit Brad and Steffi uh, uh, in uh, LMB, and we built this new super continuum source. We tried a few things out, and it kind of all started from there. So it had nothing to do with the Mesolens, uh, but we kept in touch and then I joined the Plymouth course as a lecturer and then as an organiser and then ended up running the thing for a while. And so yeah, it, it's been it's been a, over a long period of time covering different aspects of it. Interesting. And how much persuasion were you needed to move into sort of the more optics side? Because again, it is it is good to have that that spread of that diversity and, and changing your science and not just staying on one tack all the time. So how, it's almost a different set of skills as well, isn't it? So sorry, do you mean, should I, how did I learn, how did I move into optics? Yeah, well, no, from the meso lens, the actual, so you've gone from the super continuum laser, so it's sort of generating light to now focusing light. Ah, right, I see. So the question, if I understand correctly, and apologies if not, is how did you move the building lasers to get to anything to do with microscopes? <clears throat> so, oh, sorry, I missed that bit, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Right, so. Okay, how were you persuaded to move from generating light right. to the work on actually the lenses itself? Right. The actual optical lenses. Right, cool. I'll the, the microscope, not for the laser end. Right, got it. So, we were building these lasers for uh, N years, N being approximately six. Um, and the more that I learned about the laser, the more that I became curious about the microscope itself. And thinking about what what are the limits? Because it came from a position of what are the limits of the lasers? Because people are buying these lasers for companies. These lasers are normally developed for things, applications that are not microscopy, but they're being thrown at microscopes because that's the thing that, that microscopists need. So I spent a long time developing these purpose-built lasers for microscopy rather than just lasers. Then I realized that the laser is just one part of the microscope. And we really should use what we know about optics to think about the other parts of the microscope. So then it was, how can we develop new microscopy methods? And as a natural extension of that is, what do we need to do to the microscope to, to support these new applications, which as I learned more and more about the cell biology as we went through, became, their importance became evident to me. And so the Mieselens, although that was work that Brad had started in Cambridge, it, made a, it was a natural evolution of the project that when Brad was approaching retirement, we started chatting about. So what happens here, that it became a collaborative project and the, the whole project moved to Strathclyde to take advantage of what we knew about optics, but also what John Dempster could do with software. And, you know, there was just a kind of number of good reasons to, to move it at that time. <clears throat> Still, the, the Mesa lens is here, there's four, I think you said. How are you going to make it? Oh, that's a really stupid question. How are you going to make it big? It's already big. How are you going to make it more widely accessible? Right, so that's that's one of the challenges because the measle lens is big, as you see, but the, the, the size is not the problem. It is the complexity and the precision with which these elements need to be ground polished and mounted. So, you know, each measle lens is, is, is taking months to make. It's not a, you know, a standard manufacturing one. I mean, we're, we're quite lucky at Strathclyde that we do have like, the Advanced Manufacturing Centre, starting to talk to them about how we could potentially make things better. Um, but realistically, this, this is going to have to be, we prove principle and somebody else with better manufacturing capability than we have is going to take on. We'll have a chat after. Okay. Just, just some thoughts. Anyway, so quick fire questions. Oh. PC or Mac? PC. Tried Macs, didn't get it. No. McDonald's or, McDonald's or Burger King? Neither. Um, yeah, uh, they both leave me cold. <laughs> I, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> just why, just why would you not say that? Because <laughs> I know you. <laughs> because I think we probably had this conversation in the past. <laughs> we, probably, we probably had it sitting outside that. Terrible place in Genoa. Um, when you were berating me about the fun woman. Yeah. <laughs> early bird or night owl? Both. Um, I like getting up early. Uh, trying to get the exercise out of the way. Um, then I normally fade sometimes during the kind of afternoon. Would love an office nap. Have been known to take an office nap. And then I, I normally kind of come back to life in the evening again. How long do you office nap? Varies. Uh, office naps are very, very rare, uh, but yeah, normally about half an hour. Ooh, long. No, 10 to 15 minutes tops. No, I mean, that, that, that's just barely, that's a long blink. <laughs> <laughs> tidy, tidy or messy? Okay, uh, right, so it looks quite tidy behind me. That's just because um, everything's in these covers. I'm reasonably tidy. Or at least I have, a, I have a threshold that's reasonably low. Um, normally, at least once a month, and her <coughs> research group chat is okay, the place is getting a tap, you need to tidy it. Um, I find it difficult to work if there's too much around me just to distract me because I, I will look at something else and then entertain that or, yeah, easily distracted. That's why I don't really like mates. So, what was that again? Sorry, I'm just, I was just looking out the window. Uh, <laughs> come on. Uh, this is taking all of my attention, Peter. <laughs> tea, tea or coffee? 
Oh, right. Okay. This, this is a tricky one because I like both. Um, and I, I, I decaffeinated about two years ago. Um, How about the headaches? Sorry? How were the headaches when you went decaf? Well, it was because of headaches that I decaffeinated. Anyway, it turned out it was nothing to do here. It was nothing serious, but yeah, basically just you know, other stuff going on. But um, it was easier than I thought. It was a lot easier than I thought. And then um, we're returning to some kind of semblance of normal now, which means that, you know, you go and get a coffee somewhere. And so, you know, one coffee has kind of flown me. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy with tear coffee, as long as it doesn't have milk in it. Absolutely fine. Okay. Wine or beer? Uh, okay. Uh, wine with a meal. Beer. It, in my head, beer is, is going to be great. Because when I'm thinking about beer, it's after a long day of being in the hills and psychologically, I'm going to really look forward to this. But normally by the time I get home or I'm near the beer, yeah, I've changed my mind. I don't really like it. So we'll, we'll go with wine if we need to choose. So there you go. You talk about being in hills. Yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, this is somewhere in Glencoe. And I, one of my students was given a, a practice, uh, sorry, a, a presentation on their work. And I was on annual leave that day, but I really wanted to see the student give the presentation. So I, there is me in the descent from, I believe it's Buchel Etty Moore, um, where I've managed to get fairly decent Wi-Fi and I'm sitting down on the phone so that I can watch the student presentation before we carry on. So, yeah. But no Wi-Fi here. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Uh, I mean, that, that's a rare event, what you see there, because I, I don't normally do snow. <laughs> I freeze too easily and I stop functioning. So, yeah, but... Yeah, I'm just quite happy to be outside. And it's not snowing. It has been snowing. So future tense, uh, present tense there are quite important. So it's not just cycling. You like hiking and cycling? Any other exercise? Uh, no, I'd say that's probably about it. That's, that's enough at my age, as you keep reminding me about my age. <laughs> I, I don't think we're so different in age, Gail. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate or cheese? Um, yeah, probably cheese. I'm not, I'm not a big chocolate fan. A wee bit every now and again, okay. Cheese don't really fussy. Uh, um, it, it, because in my, again, it's, cheese is fine when it's straight out of the fridge. See that, that cheese is just in line a wee bit. Uh, I, I, and I know that that's, that's going to annoy quite a lot of people, but I feel it should be kind of close to room temperature and all the rest of it. That gives me the fear. It's the same with a glass of milk. If I see a glass of milk sitting out, if it's just been poured straight out of the fridge, I can look at it. I've had to leave the room when people are having a nice glass of milk. That they're really enjoying, but it just turns my stomach. Well, if it's not cold or just if it's not cold, yeah. Because yeah. then in my head, the process I'm going through is that milk's getting warm, it's gonna turn, it's gonna smell, or this is gonna be terrible. Even though I realise you know, scientifically that this is gonna take hours it's not going to take minutes but yeah i'm already at the hours see that's why i never have cereal at hotels because i can never trust the milk that you might put on it yeah i mean milk is i'm not saying it's the work of satan and all these little friends but it, it's not great it, it, i mean you've got to wonder about the person that first discovered milk and what they were doing to extract the milk for the cow you know <laughs> quickly moving on <laughs> TV or book? Or book. Uh, I have a very, very short attention span. Um, and so I can only really watch things that are that kind of 22 minutes long uh, without getting totally bored. Or if it's if it's got subtitles. I'm quite good with subtitles because then I'm doing two things at once and I'm reading as well as watching and paying attention and it, and it holds my attention better. But yeah, uh, a, a book will engage me much more readily than than any TV or film. So what type of books do you read? Oh, I'll read anything. I'll read absolutely anything. In the last week, I think I finished Mary Margulies's, um autobiography, eh, This Much Is True. I read something else, and now I'm reading something else again. <laughs> oh, Memorable what, what there was something, and it was, it, was, it was a really nice day, and I read it in, a, in, a, in an afternoon. I can't remember what it was. I need to check your treats, you know. I, I can't wait for you to come back and say, I remember now, it's how to boost your memory in 20 minutes. 
no, I definitely wouldn't be reading that. But yeah, I mean, I, one of my students asked me recently what my Desert Island book would be, uh, and I kind of immediately said Moby Dick. It's a quite a nice long book, and you know, it's, I quite like short chapters. Short, short chapters are good. Um, but I think my favourite non-fiction book is Animals Without Backbones from Bushbound. Okay, and thinking of Desert Island, then what would be your? I've remembered what my book is. It's called Phosphate Rocks. Uh, and it's by Fiona Erskine, and it's a fiction book about, uh, she's a chemical engineer who, I mean, she is, the, the author is a chemical engineer, and she writes about a chemical engineering experience, but it's a fiction piece, and it's about finding a body uh, in, a, in a factory, and the objects that surround the death, and how the, the police can therefore identify who did this. So, yeah. So there's a bit of science, but it's, it's yeah. very technical. So it's, it's kind of fiction interspersed with, you know, a, a chapter on like the element phosphorus, for example, and then there's another chapter. So yeah, we'd recommend. It's also by Scottish author, so I have to recommend it. But yeah, also a good plug. Definitely. Definitely. Thinking of Desert Island, if you could take one luxury item with you, what would you take? What's your favourite singular non-essential item? Well, see, I mean, if we're playing proper Desert Island disc rules, uh, I mean, I'd probably go with toothbrush. Okay. I used to like that with Chris Evans. Don't forget a toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I, I, I think it started off quite well, but then it just became too extravagant and ridiculous. <clears throat> and, uh, and then got taken off air for controversial reasons, exactly. if I recall correctly. I think Sean Ryder might have had something to do with that. Oh, was that not a TGIF? Is that TGIF? Mm -hmm. Oh. I know. Because that was on, they, they had to move the broadcast time and it was early. Yeah, and, and then then it was late 10 seconds. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. The rise. Oh, no, the theme tune's getting in my head. Anyway, <laughs> on. what's your favourite film? Uh, right, so we've already established I'm not really big in films. Um, if I'm asked to choose... Well, yeah, it's too long, um, but I'm going with Amelie. It's, it's beautifully shot. It, yeah, it's just, it's a lovely film. So you're going for the, how, how well directed and, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not really big in kind of romance, people, function, elements, or anything. It's just, it's just a beautiful film. Okay. I, I, you, you must have seen a Star Wars and a Star Trek. I've yeah. seen them, yeah. So you wouldn't choose either. Well, go, go, so would you be a Star Wars person or a Star Trek person? If you had to choose one or the other, which one? Oh, right, right. If, if, if it's just a either or, uh, then uh, I would have said original Star Wars, later Star Trek. Okay. <clears throat> and what's your pet hate? There's, there's so many. Just really fussy. Um, I guess that that's a struggle. Indecisiveness. No, because that's me. That's definitely me. And all no, no. I think a petty is probably unnecessary noise. <laughs> no, let, let me explain. See, see if you're sitting next to somebody and they're tapping. Like, you know, just humming, or you know, there's just unnecessary noise. I don't mean necessary noise. Unnecessary noise drives me insane. <laughs> tapping, just it's like tapping, whistling. Aye, all that. Just, <laughs> just a bit of racket that is not needed. And it's like, why are you making this noise? This is not required. <laughs> I just cannot wait for the next conference. I'm going to sit two rows behind you to make sure I'm not in arm's length of you and I might just start humming in the background. I'm just a wee bit, I kind of like, but don't do it like, like a song or, I mean, it, it should just kind of hum, hum. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it so she can't even make out what it is. How's that to make it really annoying? That's fine because now that you've told me you're going to do this, I'm going to know that it's you. And I'm going to set one of my students next to you so that they can punch in the leg every time you do it. <laughs> okay, I'll set someone else up to do it for me. I'll still get hit. I know. Okay. Oh, I'm not, I'm not any violence. <laughs>
<laughs> but what do you most love? Go on, what, what are your favourite things? What are my favourite things? Uh, I, I guess my partner, my family, um, pets. Yeah. What pets have you got? Sorry? What pets do you have? I've got two and a bit cats. Uh, and it's not a fraction of a cat, it's not a percentage of a cat, but we have two cats and uh, a cat visitor. Ah. Uh, who, it, it's a kind of hashtag not my cat, but, you know, it's kind of moved in. We know where it lives and we know where its owner is. And the owner's hopefully unlikely to watch this. You're welcome to your cat back if you are watching this. Um, but the cat, we've, we've tried driving the cat back, kind of leaving it at the front door and the cat's back it was 15 minutes later. So, yeah. <laughs> You sent me some more pictures, and I quite like this one. So this was... Oh, so me. <laughs> this, this, this is MMC. MMC. This is MMC. 2017. Now, what I like about this photo is not me. It's the many faces of Alex Sosik. Now, if you look at Alex Sosik in each one of these, it has exactly the same impression. He's not moved. But yet, everybody's wearing a different wig. But Tim's changing. Tim's the guy next to him. Tim's moved. <laughs> Ali has moved, I've moved, but it's the many faces of Alex Sosik. It's like we've wheeled him in. There's a statue and just put a different wig on. Every time I see it. <laughs> so did you just do you actually did you stay there? Did you just take a wig off and put another wig on him and uh, so this is <laughs> those listening, this is a photo booth. It's the weekend at Bernie's but with Alex Sosik. <laughs> Love it. I, I love your posy pouches, uh, pouch as well on that one. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I should explain that the cleavage is entirely not real. <laughs> I do not have any noticed. <laughs> it just looks at who was in it. I hadn't even gone that far down. It's, it's tremendously awful. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Alex. I, I just he's like, he's like a statue as weekend at Bailey's. <laughs> so, thinking of being loud. This is you on a soapbox, I presume, in the middle of somewhere. Right, so, <laughs> so I'm still thinking about the many faces of Alex Sosik. So, uh, I, I'm at a loss of to when this was, but it's roughly about 2015, 2014, thereabouts. Anyway, I think that this was the first soapbox science event that had been held in Glasgow. And uh, I was approached by a colleague to say, would you be interested in doing this? I said, yeah, of course, I'll give that a go. So I am in this photo. I'm holding, the thing I'm holding is a cardboard version of the Mesa lens. Difficult to see, but that's what I'm doing. And I was there to talk about imaging and the advantages of microscopy and all, all the other things. So yeah, there's me in my white lab coat and I'm outside Kelvin Grove Museum um, in Glasgow. So I'm in the West End. It's a Sunday and it's 11 a.m. Now, Glasgow isn't exactly known for being busy at <laughs> Sunday morning at 11 a.m. And it, it's, it's, I want to say this must have been about June time. So the weather's okay, that's why I'm not wearing like, you know, hat and gloves, otherwise I'd be freezing. Um, and there's a few people milling about, and it's, it's, it's going okay. See the thing I mentioned about unnecessary noise? <laughs> now, we're going to come back to that now. Because while I'm talking to this small assembled group about fluorescence, in the distance, I hear there's a banging noise and it's a thump and it's a very distinctive thumping and then there's whistling and I know what's coming next. So uh, what is coming down the street is an orange walk. So I'm guessing I maybe need to, need to explain that the Orange Order is an international Protestant fraternal society or order and it has its basis in Northern Ireland, and it's primarily associated with Ulster Protestants, uh, particularly those of Ulster Scots heritage, and they have marches. And this includes a yearly march that's close to the 12th of June, uh, July, sorry, um, and they have a kind of marching season, so where the, the band will process down the street with pipes and drums and flutes, and everybody in the finery. Um, Except it's really, really loud. So I'm talking to this, this tiny group of people about, you know, the, the, the merits of science and uh, imaging and fluorescence. And I'm competing with an orange walk who are about 100 metres away. And at this point, I think, right, I've 
you know, I'm just going to stop talking because I cannot compete with this um, racket that's proceeding down the street. It was only a little one, so that meant it only took about 10 minutes to pass, but you're only on that soapbox for an hour. So, yeah, it, it was a, it was a, an interesting uh, challenge, but it really did come down in the end to all science versus religion. And I think because I was still in the sort of uh, science one. I love the analogy at the end. It, we are up to, 50, to the hour mark, and you sent me some more photos, and I have to show at least one of these, which is this one. Because you must have been, what, three? Yeah, that's me. That's me. I, I mean, that's, I don't think I've aged that badly. You can still tell it's me, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm outside my front door. So, yeah, that's me. And, and, then, and then one other, which is, like, what, this picture makes it look like you're running for Parliament. Yeah, I mean, it's something. It's, it's a. It looks like the photo on a, a the back of a, a book jacket. Where you know you're kind of. I I know about this subject, uh, but yeah, one of the students turned me into a meme, and I think it's that's something like a, an objective lens with an NE five times higher than a conventional lens, and at the bottom it says, "Tell me more," and that's exactly what the face looks like. Now, that photo was taken by uh, a technician. Uh, who was an excellent photographer um, and was kind of semi-professional. And he'd spent about an hour trying to get a photo of me for a thing and nothing really worked. And I sat down and I looked at the window and he said, don't move! So I did not move and that's the shot that he took. <laughs> it is a very good picture. And finally, how would you compare yourself today to the you 20 years ago? Uh, 20 years ago, right, so I'm trying to think of age I'm, I am, um, I'm more settled, I'm more tired now, obviously, <laughs> not then, uh, yeah, I'm happier. Still got the same energy? Uh, I'd say it's used differently, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't feel I've really slowed down that much. Yep. Ask me in another 20 years, you know, that's if I'm still alive. I, I, yeah, you still have the energy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not totally wasted away yet, Peter. Don't run me out. <laughs> I'm not, I just, no, no. Right, on that note, I'm going to stop before I just dig a big hole for myself. Gail, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone who's been listening to this episode of the Microscopist. Please do subscribe to whichever channel and go back and have a look at some of the previous ones. You've heard about Brad, for example, that's uh, one of the previous guests. Gail? Entertaining as always. Thank you. Thank you. I, I did miss a proper drink with that one though, but thank you. Some water, that'll do. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.